Hey, filmmakers, Jason Brubaker talking to you from sunny Southern California. I want to welcome you to today's episode of the Filmmaking Stuff podcast. We're going to be talking about artificial intelligence, and we're going to be uh, talking with a friend of mine, an industry executive, to get his take on artificial intelligence, how it's affecting film producing, and especially for those of you that are into screenwriting, how it might be affecting your career in the future. And I got a good hint for you. Um, the future's looking pretty bright, and we're going to get into that in a second. Let me tell you about Scott Kirkpatrick. He's the executive vice president of co-productions and distribution for Nicely Entertainment. Nicely is a Los Angeles-based production and distribution company. They produce original television movies and scripted television series. From the time that I've known him, he's He's been a consummate deal maker. I mean, this guy has brokered deals behind the scenes throughout his career that, you you know, you find out about it, which is usually the situation, like we're out to breakfast and I find out something he's done and my jaw drops. I'm like, wait, you, you brokered the deal for that? I think this guy is the most understated guy in Hollywood, um, but he has done a ton of deals. So what is your perspective on AI? How do you see it transforming the landscape of production? How do you think that kind of folds into distribution? I'd love to get your perspective of what you're hearing on the front lines, if you will. So I personally am very excited about what opportunities lie ahead with AI. I also really understand why a lot of people are terrified of it, especially those on the creative side. I mean, to me, AI is a tool and no matter how technologically advanced, you know, a, a hammer and a drill are going to become in the future, you still need a human to sort of operate those tools to make a house. And I think that's sort of how you have to think about film and television production. So I, I think you got to step back and look at it as a tool and what can you do with it? You know, I'm in the business of doing distribution. I'm now doing more of the production stuff. I actually have always been doing it, but I'm just doing it, I guess, at a more senior level where... I'm sort of more directly managing a lot of that, but they're, they're very symbiotic distribution and production. One cannot operate a function without the other. So with that and with AI, a, a lot of the stuff that I do, I, I'm out there trying to get pre-sales together. I'm trying to secure financing to get films created. And so I sort of have to showcase or present or sell things that don't yet exist. And I'm creating presentations of what a movie could be you know, so that I can actually get a film into production and created and hire that writer and hire that director and everybody else, you can use artificial intelligence to sort of streamline that. I, I know recently you put out a book, it's on Amazon, called it Mastering the Pitch. So I want to get into yes. that. And I guess this does feed into your book and getting the pitch and all that kind of stuff. But how would somebody present themselves if they were trying to get your attention? I mean, I think the best way to do it is just to be professional. And, and look, the, the one thing in, okay, so the, the, the new book is called Mastering the Pitch. And it's, it's really about how to effectively pitch your work, how to get your ideas out there. And the one thing I, I really say out of the gate is there's not a correct way to pitch. There's your way. You pitch the way you need to say it to get it, you know, across. That's what's going to have like a genuine feel to it. Um, but really to kind of dive in, it, it's like human interaction etiquette. It's if someone's going to reach out, you reach out because you have something to say. You reach out when you have something to show. There's nothing worse than reaching out too early, saying you're going to write all this stuff 
and then like not having anything to showcase. If you're writing stuff Hollywood needs, they will get reviewed. If you're writing stuff Hollywood doesn't care about, it will go into the ether of we don't care. That's just fact of life. And if anyone wants like a good baseline of like, what should you have in your arsenal before you head out? There's sort of like these six genres that time and time and time again, just constantly are in need. I think if you did female driven thrillers, aging male action hero films, creature features, Christmas movies, tween romances, and, and then there's the classic one, which is like women in peril thrillers. You know, th those, those are the kinds of films that just are always in need. I would say you need two, ideally three, completely finished, ready to go scripts in any of these genres I've mentioned. And I think you need five, ideally 10, ready, fleshed out, log-lined ideas. Maybe even a one-pager would be great um, of other stuff. And if that sounds like a lot, to write, you have to understand you're going into an industry where you want to be a writer and, you know, you're expected to write and, you know, maybe do three, four scripts a year. So that's sort of the, the, the gist. One question I've been wanting to ask you, and it's the whole time I'm like, I shouldn't ask it, but the question is, what if I came to you? What if I came to you and I gave you a screenplay that hit on the things that you're looking for and you found out that it was 90% written by artificial intelligence? Would you still work with me? If it was good, yeah. I'm I mean, using me as an example. and We've known each other decades, so maybe I'm not the best uh, case study here. But <laughs> Look, if you came to me and it was 90% written by AI, I'd say kudos to you for being able to input your concept well enough that it could actually spit out something really usable on the other side. I mean, that in and of itself is kind of a talent. Um, but the reality is, it's even if, you, if, if something is generated, it still requires a human being to sift through it and refine it and clarify it and clean it and get it into shape. So if 95% of it was through a service, you still did the, the rest and you still did the work to compile it. And you still did the effort of getting it from point A to point B and presenting it in, in a way that made it sellable. So yeah. And, and it's, and, and you'd still get paid for it. Yeah. It's really interesting you bring it up that way because I was playing around with it. I ended up rewriting 90% of it anyway because because it wasn't my voice. It wasn't my soul. It wasn't authentic to me, but it helped me like flush out one transition from one paragraph to the other. And I thought that was really cool because it was what I was trying to accomplish, but I couldn't quite get there. So in a sense, it was like kind of my writing partner or my brainstorming partner or really helping me like eliminate some of those bad ideas. But I didn't feel threatened. In fact, that experience actually set my mind at ease a lot about AI, you know, presumably taking over my creative endeavors. There was um, the piano player for um, Pink Floyd. Uh, the last name's Wright. It's, his, his first name's escaping me. But when he was working on Dark Side of the Moon, there's a really great song in there called The Great Gig in the Sky. And uh, he was playing piano and he, it's an amazing song. And he got very close to the end of it and it was going in musically one direction and he couldn't figure out how to pull it back to close the piece. It was missing one chord and he couldn't piece it. Um, eventually, by sourcing tons of blues albums, he found this very specific chord to link it and close out the song. But that's what you're saying. And, and what we're talking about here, that's what AI is for. And I think that's how it will be used. It's when you get stuck, it's another resource, another tool to find that link to get you over 
hurdle. And that's how I see it. And I see it like, like take a writer's room in, you know, here in LA, like if they're doing some like hard, intense drama with a lot of complex characters and storylines, they could map out theoretical places of where things could go. And they could also be mindful of, hey, if we introduce this element now that will ripple out to that later, how do we want to deal with that? In years past, I, I remember working uh, for several different distribution companies where we would have this, this content that was good, and it was definitely good back in the day. Maybe it was even broadcast on television, but we couldn't do anything with it because the, uh, the VOD platforms wouldn't pick it up. It, it, we couldn't hit the QC standard with the deliverables we had, and it would cost way too much money to go back and re-edit it from the source files. So you're just kind of stuck with it. But are we at the point now where you can take motion picture content that's older off of whatever master that you have, you're able to up-res it to the point that you could deliver it to, to a modern video-on-demand platform and, and they'd accept it? Where are we at with all that? I would say yes. It's just, you know, some older media content is a product of its time. And there are things from the 90s that are amazing movies, but if they were viewed by younger audiences today, they wouldn't resonate as well. Same thing, I mean, from the 60s. There's amazing content in the 60s and 70s that just doesn't make as much sense today. And if you cleaned it up and, and sort of lost some of its initial tone, style, flair, it might actually be more distracting. So that would be the only criticism. But, but um, to your, your specific point, can you? Yeah, it, it makes it much cheaper to get content into a workable source file, something that's going to meet very specific, granular material delivery specs and whatnot. Yeah. Okay. So I'm a movie producer. I have this older content, had a really good festival run, maybe even picked up some distribution, but now all the rights reverted back to me. Could I re-edit that ever so slightly to make it the modern cut or the director's cut? and reintroduce it to the marketplace with an updated copyright, would you look at that and say, wow, it's still a 2012 movie? Or would you say, hey, this looks pretty modern and it's a 2023 movie? Uh, I mean, you're, you're dabbling into some interesting zones. This is what's fun about <laughs> AI. It's going to keep legal teams very well employed and very highly paid for a long time. Um, it's, it's, as far as how that would actually satisfy or, or step on the toes of copyright, I can't answer that specifically. Um, but in theory, what you are describing, I would say yes and no, because it almost sounds like the bulk of it would still be the original thing. And so people would probably still identify it as such. You know, there's, there's the quote, the technical standard, but then there's also the court of public opinion, we'll call it. But, you know, you're bringing up a more interesting point, and this is where AI gets quite fascinating. And that is, let's hypothetically say there was some individual who needed to be, I don't know, replaced in the movie because they did something horrendous and uh, the movie is unsellable as a result. Could you replace them? Yeah. Could talent agents broker on the name and likeness of their talent? And could studio executives analyze a hypothetical movie, even put together like kind of a mock version in a digitized, you know, animated sort of form and actually drop in name and likeness of said actor to get a sense of what they look like or to get a chemistry test between two talents? Could you do that? Yeah, you could. 
what you could do is actually like, you know, utilize virtual product placement and that could fund a movie. And then you could switch out the product month by month, year by year, depending on what you need to sell. If they're driving a car and it needs to be the most recent version, you could just replace it with the latest model and do that for three or four years before the overall film starts to be noticeably old. So that's, there's a lot of variety, but yes, could you dust off an old title, clean it up, get it back out there? Yeah. Could you rework it? Yeah. And, and what are the levels to that? Pretty infinite. Uh, and even though I touched on some potentially scary stuff there, I'm still super optimistic about what it can do and the opportunities it can bring and, and the type of work we're going to build from. Well, that really goes back to like the nuances of everything, right? I don't know when the technological advancements would get us to the point beyond just the superficial. And I think we are creating content as humans about the human experience for other humans. And, and we can synthesize that as much as we want, but I don't know, maybe it's like eating like the fast food dinner, right? It, it kind of serves its purpose for that moment, but you feel not so great afterwards. And you're probably not going to tell your friends about it through positive word of mouth. You're absolutely correct that, you know, if you rely on it and it's, it, you're, you're just spitting out media content only through that, it loses all heart and soul and people stop watching. And look, studio executives, channel heads, you know, they're a bottom line dependent. So if audiences stop interacting, the bottom line goes down, the ROI decreases, they pay attention and they pivot. And so at the end of the day, if, if creative isn't developing what audiences want, there's no money. If channel broadcasters aren't buying and, and, and making available what people want, there's no money and all parties need that revenue. The core genres are going to be what drive it forward. And, uh, AI is a tool and no matter how it's used. It's not, it's not going to replace human intellect. And as long as we keep an actively engaged brain in the process and don't get too automated, we're going to be good. Well, I'm going to wrap it up on that because I want to leave on, on a good note that, uh, you know, these tools, all of them, technological innovations, also like, you know, handheld tools, everything that we have out there, they're meant to assist you, not replace you. So I appreciate you coming on, Scott. And for everybody listening, the book that you want to check out, it's by Scott Kirkpatrick, and it's called Mastering the Pitch. You can pick up your copy today, right now, at Amazon or wherever books are sold. Scott, always a pleasure having you on here. I appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to share all the information. You have a wealth of knowledge, and we appreciate it. I also want to thank you, dear listener, for taking time out of your schedule to make us part of your schedule, whether or not you're commuting to or from work or just listening to us right before you head off to a meeting, you know, no matter how much technology changes, just remember, you are telling stories. You're telling stories about the human condition for other humans. And storytelling is, has been, and always will be part of our existence as human beings. So with that in mind, if you're interested in getting more information like the stuff that Scott and I talked about today, make sure you sign up for the Filmmaking Stuff newsletter where we share actionable tips and strategies with you. You can find out more about signing up over at filmmakingstuff.com. And once again, as always, take action and make your movie now.